Welcome to the Inside Out Money Podcast. Can't even recognize this place. Too many pieces of our past mistakes. Hi, I'm Maggie, and I believe real change starts from the inside out. So let's work together to improve our money and our lives from the inside out. We will explore all things money and our relationship with it. Join me each week with a rotating set of co-hosts, friends, and interviews. Let's jump in. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Inside Out Money. For those of you who might be new, this is a personal finance podcast focused on redefining wealth from the inside out. I am Maggie, and each week I speak with a rotating set of co-hosts about a different financial topic to help you improve your financial mindset and tactics. And today we've got Liz from Liz Gets Loaded co-hosting, and we're going to talk about all things anxiety and money. Hey, Liz. Hey, Maggie. How you doing? Good. I don't know. That's like a new intro for us. Usually it's just like a, hey, Liz, hey, Maggie, and we jump yeah. Yeah. I, I I think you did a really good job and I'm excited to talk to you about anxiety and money. You know, I got a lot to say here. I know. I You actually start your podcast, which is called Liz Gets Loaded for anyone that wants to look for it, with saying you have two things, right? Mm-hmm. I said, this podcast is about anxiety and money. I have both. <laughs> I love that, like the way you say that too. And I have both. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of my whole, it's kind of my brand. <laughs> yeah. Being anxious. But... but you know, I've listened to a lot of your podcasts and you don't always, it's not always evident that you have anxiety about money. I think that's really fair. And I actually had someone in my DMs maybe a couple weeks ago who said, hey, I'm a new listener. And it seems like, like, do you still talk about anxiety? And it was actually like a great thing. It was, it was good and bad. It was good because I was, what I replied back was, I'm actually in a pretty good place lately and I'm doing really well and I'm feeling really healthy, but maybe that's not as good for content. Well, what I was also going to say, is I think people like you and me who both have anxiety do a pretty good job of presenting at times without it, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Like we're good at putting on a happy face and functioning in our life. And you don't always see the anxiety that's like under the surface. Oh yeah, that's 100% true. Yeah, absolutely. On that note, we re... I was going to say I recently got a negative review. I guess it's for me too. (laughs) We collectively recently got a negative review. And I'm only going to read it because it is actually related to anxiety. It's it's stuff mm-hmm. like when I get, when I see a negative review, I get a little anxious. I really, I like feedback for what it's worth. I like mm-hmm. getting constructive feedback. I mean, for what it's worth, guys, I actually prefer you to send me an email or send a text to the number. Texts are totally anonymous. I don't know who you are. Comes from some, you know, 10 digit number. But this person left it in a public facing review. That's fine. You do your thing. They're there. Use them how you want. That's but- fine is code for <laughs> It's not fine. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, people can do what they want. But so I'll read it real quick. It says, first off, it's hard not to compare this to Friends on Fire as this is a recent transition, but I would say the content misses the mark on inspiring people to be better with their money. It seems all of the hosts have a lot of money and are fine spending it, leaving much of the info unrelatable. Andrew is the only host that has given some concrete advice on how to help those who actually have to budget. I do love Maggie's energy, but she says the same anecdotes over and over. So the content gets repetitive. I will continue to listen for a bit to see if the content gets 
gets more streamlined, but I currently feel this podcast is missing a deeper mission. I'm super curious if they're still continuing to listen, by the way. Yeah. But when I get a, a review like this, like first off, you know, the, the condiment of, you know, or fine spending their money, I've worked really hard and sacrificed. Like I've spent years of delaying gratification and, you know, I'm not going to get into all of that for people who know different backstories, but I've been very super disciplined and I'm now in a phase where, yeah, like die with zero influenced me a lot. And I am starting to try to feel more comfortable spending the money that I have worked hard to earn and save. And I know that's different. Everyone's in a different phase of their financial journey, but I do, I think you and I, Liz, and we talk about it a lot, but I have a lot of anxiety around spending my money. I have, we'll talk about it more in this episode, but I'm super anxious about money still as a person, right? And so it's interesting that it, it kind of presents as, you know, we're, we're fine spending all of our money. That literally what we're talking about on the podcast is yeah the, the mindset and psychology around that and, you know, why we have it. And so, yeah, the, the, part of the deeper mission of Inside Out Money was to focus a little bit less on some of the tactics because we all know the tactics mm -hmm. and to focus more on the psychology of money and our mindset around it, because that is often what is holding many people back from budgeting better or, you know, spending less money or whatever it might be. Yeah, I totally hear you. I saw this too. And I, I laughed a little bit at the idea of just all the hosts seem fine with spending money because I, you might think that based on my high expense review numbers that we talked about in the mid-year spending. But I, I go back and forth sometimes multiple times a day between being like, Liz, you're fine. Just go live your life and, and do what makes you happy and feeling really like I'm comparing myself, like I'm not going to have enough and, and falling into a scarcity mindset. I mean, after we recorded that mid-year expenses episode, I kind of spun for a week. I re actually recorded like another episode on Liz Gets Loaded about a little bit more of a deep dive about what I spent and how I felt about it. And I had to kind of unpack that a little bit. But I also think you're right in that, I mean, the the breadth of personal finance content is very wide and there's something for everyone, right? And sometimes people want to get really nitty gritty on how to make your, you know, convert your traditional contribution to do a backdoor Roth IRA. And sometimes yeah. people want to sit down and think about money and anxiety and different tactics that can help us there and, you know, to each your own. Yeah. And just to clarify for folks, I mean, the deeper mission of this podcast is not to get super tactical. We will at times, like I know Liz, you and I are excited. We're going to do an HSA episode soon, yeah. maybe our next episode. And we'll get fairly tactical on that probably, but not, we don't ever get, you know, really, really tactical because we are talking about these things high level in a verbal conversation. I was going to say for 30 minutes, but let's be realistic for an hour. <laughs> yeah. So is what it is. I also wanted to tie it in because I also heard a good tip. I learned this from Chris Hutchins actually, who was the first interview a yeah. couple weeks ago. And yeah, I really enjoyed meeting him. He, in, not in that episode, but in, a, in something else that he produced, he mentioned asking for podcast reviews on your birthday. And so I thought every time, I, anytime there's like a negative view, review, I'm always like, oh, it's nice to like pepper in some positive reviews on top of that one and, you know, yeah. push that negative review down in my mind and physically on Apple Podcasts. <laughs> but this episode will actually release on my birthday. And so oh. I was just going to say, if anyone, I don't think nobody should be spending money on uh, certainly, certainly none of you should be spending money on me, <laughs> but I don't even like, like spending, I think there's like the things I want to give at this age and at this point in my life, like the things I want to give my friends for their birthday or like my time and, you know, perhaps going out to dinner or something, but like we don't gift things to each other. Well, I was going to send you like a Prada handbag for your birthday, but instead, <laughs> I, I just want to review. I'll write a review. I think I already yeah. wrote a review. I was going to so say, I'll... first off, if you've already not left a review, Liz, like we have a different issue to discuss here. I think I did, but I maybe, think I'll, you did. I'll go make another, I might not have left a written review. I'm sure I gave five stars. I'll go make another fake Apple ID and I'll leave you another. <laughs> 
you don't need to go to all that trouble. But for everybody else who has a real Apple ID, I would love it. And Liz would love it. And Andrew would love it. And Greg would love it. And Erica would love it. If you would go and leave us a written review on Apple Podcasts. And if you want to leave one on Spotify too, that would be awesome. So on Spotify, you can only leave a star review. But on Apple Podcasts, you can actually leave a written review. We would love right. a written review if you can take the time. And then I'm totally serious. If you guys ever do have constructive criticism about the podcast or feedback and, and just how it's going, what you would like to see more or less of, what's helpful, what's not, what's resonating, what's not. I really do like hearing that. And it's not just because it's like a public facing thing, but the I, I can't have a two-way conversation with you on Apple Podcasts. It's totally anonymous. And I would love for you to send a text in, send a voicemail and send an email in if you're comfortable. And it's super helpful. I love receiving it. I would love for you to reach out and share that. And again, you can send a text message to the number that we share at the end of the episode, which I'll just tell you right now. Also, it's 404-981-3370. Always feel free to send in comments or requests via that number. I reply to everyone. If I don't reply to you, it's a mistake and I've somehow missed it. So send a send me a nudge and I will reply to you. Also, Maggie, stop listening for a minute. Also, listeners, you could send a text and wish Maggie a happy birthday today. I was going to say, yeah, you could, but then it'd be like I was listening. It's hard to plug my ears with headphones on, you know? <laughs> we'll just pretend. Okay. Okay. So I am sorry. I, I'm, I, I get how like reviews can feel rattling and I feel the same way every time I get. It's hard putting yourself out publicly yeah. and it's really vulnerable, especially when you're talking about money. Like people have a lot of opinions about how you spend your money and yeah. that can only add like even it, it, it sometimes can add, sometimes it's helpful. I think sometimes sharing things online and when someone else says, oh, I do that too, or that's how much money I spend on food or yeah, yeah, I've made a similar choice. It can feel really good, but sometimes it makes it worse when someone's just yeah, like, hey, dummy, what are you doing? Well, I do. I should say I very much appreciate this person was very like respectful and how that was written. Totally. Every now and then you get something that's like rude and snarky, yeah. which really has not like thankfully happened to us a lot. But I do really appreciate when someone is like well thought out and it's a it's a meaningful that 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 came from a, a good place. Yes, 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 yes. Not this person. I appreciate, you know, all feedback, but it is it creates like tying us back to our topic today. It makes me anxious, right? I have an emo like the, the definition of anxiety. Let's just jump into it, right? Is yep. a natural emotional response to stress or uncertain situations. And I have an emotional response when I, you know, read a bad review. We'll get off that point now, but you know, <laughs> it, it can involve feelings of worry, fear, unease. It can be accompanied by physical symptoms like a racing heart, really tense muscles. And some level of anxiety is normal. Excessive or persistent anxiety is considered or can be considered a mental health disorder. And if it interferes with your daily life, I think I want to, you know, I just, we're going to talk about anxiety for the next, I don't know, six hours. So I wanted to just make a distinction too, that everyone has anxious feelings. Sometimes everyone has worries sometimes. And having the difference between that and having an anxiety disorder generally is the extent to which you feel it. And if you experience anxiety to the point that it prevents you from functioning, where it's persistent, even when your concerns are unrealistic is when you start getting into more of a conversation about mental health. And we're going to talk about both today. We might not be 100% precise. We might talk about those things a little bit interchangeably and just want to be sensitive and call that out at the beginning. Yeah. 
and that we are not psychologists. We are not professionals in this space. So, you know, we're doing our best to talk about something that we have both experienced different levels of and had, you know, a mix of probably therapy and meditate. I was going to say meditation, but I meant medication, but both actually. <laughs> yeah. And there's even just went with, with diagnosed anxiety. There's also different levels. There's levels where you're just dealing with it. Yeah. And in different ways, there's, le- and back to the, you know, me accidentally saying the words meditation versus medication. There's ways where you're just dealing with it with meditation and other things. And yeah, there's ways where you are dealing with it with medication, right? There's different levels of that, even within, you know, what is a more diagnosed level of anxiety, or like you yeah. said, just where you experience it to the point where it affects your life on a more, you know, daily basis. Yeah. Prevents you from being able to function. As- yeah. Yeah. So within that, as we're talking about the concept of anxiety, worrying about money and having financial anxiety is incredibly common. It, money is the number one cause of stress in the US. And I'm sure there's world stats on that too. I'm just specifically quoting uh, a stat I know in the US because I just did this presentation to Emory yesterday. And there is a stat that I've used in a lot of presentations, which is 77% of Americans feel considerable anxiety about finances. And that is a mix of, you know, arguing with loved ones about it, afraid to open their mail, answer the phone over, you know, debt collectors, feeling guilty about spending money and just feeling worried and anxious about money. So it's incredibly common. Mm-hmm. And, and it's even more common in certain groups. So it's more common among women. It's more common among young people. And it's more common among people of color, which makes sense when you think about some other forces in the world that might make money harder for those groups. Yeah. I was actually just talking to someone after this presentation and they were reminding me, they were sharing that they were stressed about something financially. And then they were saying, and that makes me move to retail therapy. And then that makes it worse. And I know that's not helping my financial situation. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that is an incredibly common common and vicious cycle, which is what we want to talk about today and, and try right. to you know, help get people out of. Because yes, often your response to ironically financial stress is then spending more money to make yourself feel better, you think, in the short term, mm-hmm. which then in some period of time has you stressed about money again. Right. Yeah. I do think people can have two different responses. Well, there's a lot of different responses, but two main ones can be to retail therapy, going and spending money on something to make yourself feel better or being more of a hoarder. I have been more of a hoarder and I always feel lucky because I feel like that's the easier hole to climb out of. Yeah, I I agree. I've been more of a scarcity mindset hoarder, which we'll talk about in a minute, like bag lady syndrome and all that. And you're right. That is easier to climb out of than the opposite. I think. Yeah, I I think so. I, I could be wrong, but for me, it feels easier. Okay. I think generally too, when we're talking about financial stress and financial anxiety, you can put those fears into two buckets. So one fear that comes from a true lack of resources or significant debt or unexpected bills or a home that's falling apart, job loss, those kinds of things. Like like true financial insecurity. Right. Right. And I don't mean like mental insecurity. I mean, like you literally are financially insecure and you- Right. Some kind of lack of enough. And then the other- other bucket, I would say, comes from maybe from trauma, from your childhood experiences or from perfectionism. And I will, I promise I will try not to quote my therapist too much on this podcast. But <laughs> when I say perfectionism, I think sometimes we think of that as someone who tries really hard to do everything really well. But another way of thinking of perfectionism is someone who's really good at finding what's wrong with other people mm-hmm. or within yourself. Yeah, that is an interesting like reframing of that. <laughs> and they're both of- real, to be clear, those two buckets, right? Yeah. But they 
the, I would say the solutions are different. Yeah, that's a great way of saying it. And there, and yeah, the roots of them are different. Like wh- how they might have, how you might have gotten there are very different. Mm-hmm. And the impact that, yeah, they're just how you got there is different and how you get out of there and start to make progress, I do think is very different. There's, there's probably some overlap of how you make progress coming from both of those places, but there's also a lot of things that would be more helpful coming from yeah. one or the other, which we're not going to necessarily get into being that prescriptive with you all, but we will get into some of our own stories and relationship with money and anxiety and then what has helped us and what we think might help many people who do have anxiety and particularly around money because- yeah. This is a financial podcast. It is. And I'll also just say, I mean, I think for both of us, we've probably never spent too much time in the first bucket. Like I have never actually been in a situation where I couldn't put food on the table or I didn't think I was going to be able to afford my rent or my mortgage. Again, that doesn't mean that that stress is any less real, but I can only speak to my own experiences. Yeah, that is fair. I think we both, I think, have acknowledged many times and come from a, a definite place of privilege. And so, yes, we have not experienced uh, at any point in our lives, even though there were times when I was younger where I thought everyone around me had a lot more than me, I never, as I got older and realized what I actually had, I had an immense amount of privilege and did not did not always realize that though as a teenager, yeah, yeah. which is interesting. And it's not like we don't have real bills to pay, right? Like I really have gotten stuck with, you know, a $4,000 car repair bill when I was making $50,000. That was still a real thing to worry about and it still really sucked, but it wasn't putting me at risk of being homeless or anything. Yes. You were still making $50,000. Okay. So Liz, how for you, I'm curious, how has anxiety presented for you related to your finances and money specifically? Yeah. So I've come a long way <laughs> from in a lot of different respects, but I mean, I used to just lay in bed at night and play out worst case scenarios. I would worry about money so much and I would think, okay, what if one of the two of us lost our jobs? Okay. What if we both lost our jobs? What would we do? Okay. What if we both lost our jobs and then one of us got sick or both of us got sick? What if we both lost our jobs and both of us got sick and then our dog bit someone and we got sued and our whole house foundation crumbled? And I would I would sort of like work backwards of like, okay, we have an emergency fund. Okay, I could pull money out of my 401k, worst case scenario. And the place I would always land was, okay, neither of our parents would let us become homeless. And that was where I would end up. That is so funny you say that because I was about to ask you where you landed in all those worst case because mine always were, I could go live with my mom. I could go get a job at Starbucks, at McDonald's. I could go work anywhere. Like I'm a driven, hardworking person and I'm not above anything. And I could go get some job that would be different. And I could go live with my mom. That It always ended with, I could go live with my mom. Mine always also ended up with, we could go live with one of our parents. But I, the thing I would worry about would be if we both lost our jobs or one of us, because one of us became very, very sick. Like if I was right. so then you paralyzed, then I probably yeah. wouldn't be able to work at yeah. any job. Did any of your, of that anxiety end with you buying multiple types of insurance to cover all those scenarios mm. in addition to living with your parents? I haven't bought my double job loss debilitating <laughs> illness insurance yet. Because they but, have insurance to cover many of those things, right? They have an umbrella policy yeah. to cover cover a dog, you know, someone suing you because your dog bit them. Yeah, and- I do. Like I said, I'm in a much better place now. I think my worst case scenarios often end up being, oh, I would have to sell this house 
and downside. Not that living with my parents is a worst case scenario. They're lovely. <laughs> it would be fine. But I think I have purchased umbrella insurance. So if someone sues me, there's that in place. I have long-term disability insurance, which I think every single person should have. I think that's a really overlooked one. And I also have significant, I have higher income. I have more resources. I have more savings. I have a higher net worth. I'm just overall in, in a much better place than I yeah. was. So, Hey, for those who don't know real quick, long-term disability insurance covers if at a very high level, it replaces your salary. If you were to become sick and injured, par- like you just said, paralyzed and could no longer do the job that you previously mm-hmm. did. And so it's kind of like a salary replacement if you become sick or injured. Yep. It's generally really inexpensive. And it's, I, I, I mean, I don't, <laughs> not that I have any credentials to recommend this, but if you're interested in my opinion, I always recommend that people buy this. It's like one of those boxes when you go to enroll in your employer's health plans Yeah, that, you know, you might get to that box and think, I don't know if I should check this box or not. Liz, I think I mentioned you once I got denied for it when I tried to add it on after I had been at my company for like five oh, or 10 years yeah. because of a pre-existing condition. And the, and the what I found out was had I just signed up when I started at the company, yeah. it would have been fine, but you can't add it later. And I don't know if that's common at companies. I think that it is because I think the logic here is what they don't want you to do is not sign up for it, but then realize that you have something going on yeah. and then sign up for it. So you kind of yeah. get this one window when you first join yeah. your employer. And there are private plans that you can go out and get to. But for I think for most of us, the path of least resistance is yeah, signing up through your employers. And plan. I think the private plans cost more and and just like real insurance, right? Like your employer's subsidizing a lot. If you go and get, you I think, think it's, it's probably that um, it's pooled risk, right? Yeah. Again, if you go sign up for it individually, it might be more likely that you think that you might have some need for this. Whereas if you're signing up through your employer, right? Like that risk is sort of spread yeah. across the, the population. I mean, I I don't, I don't know for sure. Well, but so I think that's small logic. tip on that point is when you start working for a company, highly consider signing up for it then because you may not yeah. be able to sign up for it later. 100%. Okay. Okay. So where, what else? Like where <laughs> else do you see anxiety coming to life for you? Yeah. I mean, I've always been just aware of money. And like I said, it had, it had these sometimes sort of intrusive thoughts and worries. And for me, what that led me to do is to hyper fixate. So I have been tracking every penny that goes in and out of this house for years and years I've got. I used Mint. Now I use You Need a Budget. I got my own color-coded spreadsheet. I, I look at it a lot. Even early in my 20s, I would when I would first get to work in the morning, I would, this was before I had Mint, I would just log into every single one of my accounts. I would log into my bank account. I would log into my credit cards and I would just look and look at what was there. And I did that every single day and it felt normal. And now I wonder what was, maybe what was going on there. So so for me, it was hyperfixation. But for other people, I think it's it can also manifest as avoidance, right? That I'm not even going to open that bill. I don't even want to look at my balance. And so I I think that can go a couple different ways there. The other main area I would say for me that I have experienced financial anxiety, I've never personally been laid off myself, but I have been at companies many, many times that went through layoffs and it has hit very close to home in my family. And and it still puts me on edge. Uh, You know, if if my manager schedules an impromptu meeting without an agenda, if there's something going on in my partner's work, I'm just like, what's happening? <laughs> what are they doing? And so... Yeah, you immediately go to that place of like worst case scenario. And it's really interesting. It's very physical. I, I think a lot of people can probably relate to this. I mean, my heart beats hard. It makes my stomach hurt. 
even though, you know, candidly, I'm at a place today where that wouldn't you'll be, be fine. It would be yeah. fine. Like it would, it would, it's, it would be emotionally really terrible. Financially, it, again, we would still be able to put, put food on the table. We'd be able to pay our mortgage. It would be fine, but it's still, it's no good. But I, that, I think that's how anxiety is. It's not logical. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It, if, if that, then it wouldn't be anxiety, I, I think. I don't know right. if I'm verbalizing <laughs> that right, but. Well, I, yeah. I mean, we, we all have like worries and anxieties about things that are real, but I, I do think your, your mind can definitely run away from you. But, yeah. but I also think job loss is an interesting one. And maybe we don't talk about this enough. I, I think of it as in two very distinct buckets. It's an emotional thing and it's a financial thing. And losing your job, I was, I can't remember I read this, is a traumatic event. It, it has a similar effect on your body and your mental health as a death in your family, as being in a car accident. It, it's a really big thing. It's not just financial. So I've also heard it has an equal impact, equal, if not close to equal impact on the people who weren't laid off, but that were like sitting in the same role right next when it was like, you know, there's five people on the team and half of them were cut. Well, I think pick six people on a team and half of them were cut. <laughs> I think survivor's guilt is very, very real. And yeah, you it's it's I think similar to when you almost get in a car accident, right? You have that close call. I mean, it, you really physically feel it, and yeah, it's not the same out. as actually being in the car accident, but it it can really affect you. Yeah. What a, I mean, I know I think we have some I think we have some overlap here, but I know you <laughs> talked about bag lady syndrome. It always makes me giggle a little bit, even though I know it's serious. But it's a re- you know it's a real thing. Yeah. Like, I, I for years I've talked about this before, probably on Friends on Fire a number of times, but I for years couldn't put a word to this. And then I read a book called The Bag Lady Paper, a book called The Bag Lady Papers. Is that, is that what it's called? Hold on. Sounds right. Yeah. Then I read a book called The Bag Lady Papers, The Priceless Experience of Losing It All. And it was written by somebody who kind of had it all, lost her, int- like was very responsible with her money, did all the right things, had a good job and lost all her money in the Bernie Madoff scheme. Mm. And it was like her worst nightmare. And, and in that book, she talked about the bag lady syndrome. And I was like, oh, there's a name for it. I didn't <laughs> know because I always had this kind of irrational fear of no matter how hard, hard I worked, how much I saved that someday something terrible would happen and I'd lose it all. Or like I'd get really sick and I'd have to spend like millions of dollars to try to save my life or a child's life or a spouse's life. And my reaction, like similar to some of the points you're making, Liz, of like the, the reaction to that can go two ways. One, you can kind of just, you know, get stressed and spend a lot of money. My reaction was hoarding money and getting over. I spent a lot less as a result because I was always worried that I would need this money for something in the future. But then part of me was like, but if I'm really, if I'm really playing this worst case scenario out and I'm going to lose it all in the Bernie Madoff scheme, I should just spend it and enjoy it now. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I, I'd kind of, you know, I'd go, go in different directions. I'd go down different rabbit holes of thoughts on that point, but I legitimately had this and still do a little bit, just this fear around I'm doing all the right things, but something out of my control can hurt me, which is true. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's rare, but it could happen. And back to your point of, you know, you like start to let yourself go down those paths and think like, well, what's the worst thing that can happen? What's, and then what if I lose my house? And what if I, you know, I have friends and family that would take me in 
temporarily while I get back on my feet. I would, mm-hmm. you know, there's there's all these things to kind of talk yourself out of getting down these negative spirals of thoughts. Um, yeah. But I also back when I mean I talked about a lot. I I was scared of investing. I didn't know where to yeah. begin. I was yeah. overly I was overly needed like the right answer and didn't know what it was and wanted to find the right professional to help me. So I just didn't do it. So yeah. I I delayed progress for a very long time as I was looking for what I thought was supposed to be a financial planner to tell me where to put my money. Right. And at, at about the age of 35, I learned about index funds, which I'm like, I still tell Andrew when we talk about this and he starts talking about like when we worked together at Home Depot in our I early know. 20s. I'm like, dude, Andrew. how can we never, of all the things we talked about, you know? Rude. Yeah. <laughs> I could go back in time, you know? But that's that perfectionism coming in, right? You you were you were procrastinating and not taking action because you didn't know the, the right thing to do. Yeah, exactly. And then also I ruminate on the thought of, oh, why didn't I, instead of just appreciating where yeah, I am now and, and how far I've come since the age of 35. I mean, I retired six years later once I finally learned about index funds <laughs> uh, because of all that bag lady syndrome hoarding. And so I just, it, it presents in a lot of different ways and it, it has for me. And as much as, I don't want to tie it all back to that review, as much as, much as it seems like I'm just like, okay, spending my money, I'm not. I have yeah, a lot yeah. of scarcity mindset around money still. I had a lot of fear around leaving my job. I was like, it totally. is irresponsible to leave a good paying job. Every, it goes against everything I've ever learned in this right. world. And so I just say like, I have anxiety around all the stages of money, like how I earn it, how to save it, how I grow it, how I'm spending it. What and I did I, in the past. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ruminating on what I did in the past and what I didn't do in the past and how things would have been different if I had done something. And I think that's really relatable both to me and a lot of people. One of the, one of the podcast episodes I did that I got the most comments from and I'll share the link was going back and like actually looking at what I did in my 20s and sort of giving myself credit and like being more kind I'm like getting emotional talking about it um I think I had the same thoughts as you like oh why didn't I figure out this sooner like why wasn't I more on top of it and I looked back and I was like you know what 20 year old Liz was doing her best and she wasn't getting into credit card debt and she was making the best decisions with the resources she had she didn't make a ton of money like she's fine you're fine (laughs) that is very like compassionate just self-compassion of yeah you did a lot you did probably more things right than wrong and exactly and i like the yeah you did you did what you did with the knowledge you had right and that's one of the things that's one of the reasons i am very passionate about this podcast and just doing having these conversations because i wish i had listened to more stuff like this in my 20s right and i can't go back and change that but i can help to get like spread the good financial word to other people right yeah i'm very jealous of people who are growing up and by growing up i guess i mean being in their 20s <laughs> um, in this day and age versus when you and i were in our 20s and you know that your resources for financial education were like maybe a book mm-hmm. and that seminar you had once a year at work yeah they would just tell you to put more money into your 401k yeah and they were financially incentivized to like tell you not the right things anyways and yeah, I, yeah okay didn't... you know sign up for our managed investment yeah we'll option. we'll manage it for you for just a small you know exactly but one thing i could really relate to liz that you said is when you were one of the things I would do when I was like having a very stressful day at work is I would open personal capital or Wealthfront and like look at my net worth and it would make <laughs> me feel better because I would I would just be like okay I'm I'm really stressed something something is peaking like a physical 
whole mental anxiety response in me at work. And I am just reminding myself, like, I could walk away from this if I had to for my own sanity and I'll be okay. Like, that was something I frequently would do. I may or may not have had a moment like that at some point in the last couple of weeks. <laughs> just, just in that like work's been stressful. Yeah. I mean, I think we all have, even as someone who's in a job that I really enjoy, I get to work with amazing humans. I still have moments sometimes, you know, really rough days or I just, I like, I look at my net worth and I do some math and I'm like, how soon could I potentially be okay. retire? Yeah. And even if not fully retire, like you certainly could take some time off. Yeah. Which actually, and I know we're going to talk a little bit more here in a moment about things that have helped us manage our anxiety. And for me and this, I know not everyone can do this, but like growing my income and growing my reserves and having more money invested has definitely given me a lot more security in everything I do in work in, oh no, what is that thump in the basement? Is that sounded expensive? Yeah. <laughs> right. Not another bat. Yeah. What's going on with the dog? Like, is this going to be a $10,000 cancer bill or a, you know, $500 antibiotics bill for the dog yeah. or for me, I guess. <laughs> True. <laughs> Yeah. Well, let's let that moment be now. Like, let, I think we can shift to what what has helped. Like, some of the things I think we're going to talk through some of the things that have helped us and that we believe can help other people that are dealing with some level of anxiety around money. I think one of the first ones, which is what we were just talking about with something like this podcast, is learning more. Right, learning and educating ourselves through books, podcasts, different. There's just so much. The cool thing about these days that I will. Say, I don't feel like was around when I was in my early 20s is like the amount of financial content that's out there. Mm -hmm. And look, you got to be careful because there's also some like very predatory financial content out there. But being able to like the simple thing of buying basic index funds for me, right? And understanding the historical performance, it, it speaks for itself. Like let data ease that anxiety. And it, you know, the stock market's not guaranteed by any means, but there's, you know, a very long history of even when there's big downs and, you know, massive unprecedented global pandemics and housing crises and mm -hmm. other things of how things rebound and what things do longer term and understanding that. And the more we can educate ourselves and learn, I think is one of the biggest things that can start to improve our anxiety and our relationship with anxiety and, and particularly money. I think sometimes looking at stock market returns can be helpful. I, I've gone back and looked at, you know, I think it took five years for the market to recover, at least it's the S&P 500 after the dot-com bubble burst. It took, I think, a year or two for stock prices to recover after the early 2020 uh, stock drop. But actually, I would say historical returns do not help me sleep at night because I also look at, like, um, I think it's in Japan, like their um, broader index has been on a downturn for something like 11 years. And I, I just, also our stock market is relatively new in the grand scheme of human history. <laughs> so even though we can look at a hundred years of data, like it's not a thousand years of data, right? And, but what does help me sleep at night is the idea that the stock market is not random and that there are a lot of humans rowing in the same direction who all want it to go up, right? Like the president of the United States very invested in the health of our stock market. So is Congress. So are lots of CEOs or lots of other powerful business people. Back to the example of going down to the like worst case scenario to start to alleviate your anxiety. Mm -hmm. I often think that related to, you know, what if I've now that I've finally gotten comfortable and less anxious about the stock market? What if I'm wrong? Right. And right. I, and, and, <laughs> but I also think like if that that thing as a, you know, if the stock market as a thing were to fail and really yeah. just like 
not do well, right? Just yeah. go bottoms up or whatever. We have way bigger problems in the world at that point mm-hmm. than like my net worth. And so I often do like when I when I start to kind of, again, go into the worst case scenario, I feel a little better. And it's a similar point that you're making of there's too many people that can't let that fail that I do have some level of faith in. Yeah, because the stock market is just a bunch of companies trying to make money, right? So that's always going to be the case. <laughs> there's yeah. always going to be companies trying to grow, trying to raise capital through the public markets. Again, if that's that my point changes, of, then a lot is changing. that changes, like no society is broken down, exactly. right? There's something else. And again, we just went through a global pandemic where everybody yeah. couldn't leave their homes for like months right. and we still were fine. And that yeah. was like weird and unprecedented. And all of a sudden, you know, right. so yes. There's a saying, I'm forgetting exactly. It's like, well, if the stock market goes to zero, the only thing you'll actually want is like canned food and ammunition or something. So, so in any case, the more you learn about how money works, whether it's investing, budgeting, debt, et cetera, the more confident you can feel. And I, I think we, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably don't need me to tell you that. <laughs> but adding podcasts to your feed, following people on Instagram, reading blogs, reading books, whatever way is best to digest that information, the more you know, like the more confident you can be. Because I, I, I have this really vivid memory. I was at work and I was just chatting with someone I was friendly at work. And she was telling me about how she had gone to this financial advisor and signed up for this life insurance policy that oh, it's so great. It's going to grow and you can borrow from it. Like, turns out it's a whole life insurance policy, which is not a good idea. That person Big no-no. Probably... No. Big no-no. Exactly. No. Like, yeah. this is a terrible, this was probably a terrible idea for her. But I didn't know that. And like, I just thought she knew something I didn't know. Like, I thought financial advisors had this kind of magical knowledge that I could never have if I didn't study and go to school for this. And it made me feel like I was falling behind. And now if someone told me that, I wouldn't say like, well, I don't know what I would say, but I wouldn't have this feeling of, oh, you know, something I don't know, I would feel really confident that like, yeah, I know enough about money to manage my own money. If you're doing something I don't know about, it's fine. So on the note of whole life insurance, one of the pieces of advice that I would have for people is, and, and my point about whole life insurance is it's a good example of, of what not to do, but is do less risky stuff, right? So if you're anxious about things, even if you're not, I'd say do less risky stuff in general, <laughs> but particularly if you are anxious, stay away from the risky stuff. So like I bought some crypto. I got into like a, I rode, I got on the crypto bus. My brother kind of pushed me onto it. I've lost a lot of money in crypto and that's not the point of it, but it's, it was an anxious ride. Like, you know, it it was like, oh, I want to, I'm feeling better about this, but that wasn't, I should feel good about index funds and I should be okay with that and not feel like I have to try some new thing. And, and I, I put, you know, kind of, I was going to say, I put like whole life and crypto in the same category, but they're in very different categories, but crypto individual stocks, there's a bunch of other, I just got some pitch about, you know, someone that uh, wanted to come on the podcast that does options trading. And Mm. I'm not saying there aren't people who make money on all of these things. There are, but they're not the average person that's not doing it like professionally and full time and, you know, very well trained and educated on it. And they're not the anxious person. (laughs) Like they're not for someone who isn't a, you know, full time professional, non-anxious about money. And it it is the equivalent to gambling in many ways. Yeah. I hear you on that. I have some friends who have taken much bigger financial risks, taken some big swings and it's paid off for them. And sometimes I feel a little regret like, oh, maybe I should be like that. But I also know that I, it's not worth losing sleep over it. And yeah, well, it's not worth the, like for me, I know for me, it's not worth the emotional ups and downs. So I'm glad I did crypto. I actually still own it because I'm hanging on to like some hope that it's going (laughs) to turn around. And at this point, I've kind of like written it off as a loss mentally, but I, I just know myself and Andrew talks about 
about this with index funds, right? It's just easy. You just set yeah. it and you forget it. And dollar cost averaging in index funds, it is one of the best financial thing, like lowest anxiety financial moves you can make. Yeah, I ended up with, so I sold a house like years and years and years ago and ended up with a, a low six-figure sum that I needed to figure out what to do with. It's actually how I, one of the ways I sort of stumbled into nerding out about money on the whole oh, that's funny. was Googling like, what should I do with X dollars? And so I spent all, I mean, I, I was literally like, how should I invest this money? And the Google results were like, maybe you should buy a laundromat. <laughs> Like maybe you should. What a random Google response to that. I mean, just all kinds of things. And so I eventually, after a long time of hemming and hawing and clutching my proverbial pearls, I ended up investing it into a mutual fund with Vanguard. And a couple weeks later, just the stock market had this huge drop and I was so nervous and I definitely lost sleep over it. And I wish I had just put money in a little bit at a time, which is what dollar cost averaging is. If you're not familiar, it's yeah. a sort of fancy term that just means if you've got a big big lump sum of money, you can either invest it all at the same time, or you can say, I'm going to do this in 500 or a thousand or $5,000 a month until I have put it all in. Yeah. And it just helps you spread out your risk because some months it's going to be up, some months it's going to be down. And over time, you will have bought in on this average price over however long. Yeah. You can listen to Andrew and I explain that. Really, Andrew explained that in episode three of Inside Out Money, which is mm. how to invest the boring yet productive way, which is dollar cost averaging in index funds. It's kind of fun to have like a bigger backlog now of inside out money episodes where we can reference usually I'm like referencing old friends on fire episodes but now we can start to reference inside out money episodes too I love that I'm gonna start referencing this episode and if you want to know more about that yeah listen to this episode <laughs> okay so I think another one is actually related to what you just the story you just told about your house and selling it is just time and experience like I think mm-hmm. both of us have become less anxious and I have to mix in the word fear too like I did a whole mm-hmm. talk at Camp Fi about fear and to me, fear is all anxiety, right? They're, yep. they're like one in the same in many ways or or they're cousins or something like that. And just having the older I get and the more wisdom and experience and just time, ex- time literally in the market experiencing those returns and seeing the ups and downs also mm-hmm. saying, you know, the market was really up two weeks ago and now it's down some. And you're like, that's okay. I've seen it go up and down now 20 times and I'm confident it will eventually go back up. And I think that is a huge, a huge thing that will alleviate your anxiety. So if you're younger and you haven't mm-hmm. had as much experience buying into the market and other things, and or you're just younger in life, just knowing that this will get better over time. I know it's easier for me to say that to you. If 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 I had said that to you know my 20, 30 year old self, I'm not sure how I would have received it. Yeah. I know from talking to teenagers that it does not get received. You have to just experience <laughs> it yourself. But a time and experience will help. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, having lived through the drop of 2020, I think that was a really bad one. I, I, w- I wasn't really invested enough in 2008 for it to have registered yeah, me. me a lot. I had friends who were more impacted, who made more money than I did, um, who were like, oh, my 401k balance. And I was like, I don't even, I don't even know how to look at that, luckily. But yeah. having lived through 2020 makes the ups and downs more recently feel a lot more manageable. Yeah, I think that's true. Another thing that has changed for me a lot over time is 
I've just increased my income a lot. And I know that that's not, that's simple, not easy. Yeah. <laughs> and it really helps me feel more secure in a couple ways. One, if I have a high paying job now, I can probably get another high paying job at another company. And having the additional income means I don't have to worry as much about the day to day or month to month expenses. And it's also let me save a lot more money. And it's also let me put more money aside for retirement so I can feel more comfortable that way. I also think it's interesting to just look statistically at when your income is the most likely to peak. And I, oh, it's been a minute since I looked at this, but off the top of my head, it, it's like 40s and 50s is generally when your income is going to be the highest. And so heading into those years, it feels like, okay, what happens statistically for a big group of people doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen for you as an individual, but I can know that generally that is the most likely scenario for me. I agree. And I always, when, when people say, you know, money can't buy happiness, I tend to agree in theory of the point that that is making, but money over time and increasing the amount of money you have, it can reduce your anxiety, Absolutely. which can make you happier. And, 100%. and then also, I know, I mean, this podcast is a huge example of this, but a big thing that has helped with my anxiety around money, and I think is very helpful to many people is talking about it with other people and having a sense of community. Mm-hmm. And I got a lot through, you know, starting and having the podcast Friends on Fire and talking to Mike and it opening up the conversation of being able to talk to so many other people, meeting people like you, Liz, mm-hmm. and talking to other people on this podcast, but just in the community, the Camp Fi community, the FinCon yeah. community, the Instagram, you know, a lot of other financial content creators. It's it really powerful. I think it's some advanced level stuff to be able to talk in real life to humans about money, but starting online can be a really great place to start. I've loved following some anonymous Instagram accounts who post all of their income and spending. And especially when I can find someone who's maybe in a similar situation to me, right? Oh, that's another woman who's in a double income, no kids household. Yeah. Dink. (laughs) They have a similar income to me. Maybe they have a similar net worth to me. Like those can be great places to start. I agree. And so speaking of starting, man, we're like just lobbing up segues for these. (laughs) Start, you gotta like have a plan, right? Having some sort of a plan and knowing what you want your goals to be, tracking your spending, tracking, like tracking things, I think, and having a plan associated with that, I think can often reduce a lot of anxiety. Totally agree. And I think having a plan is one of those things that can hit on both of the buckets of financial fears, both the ones that come from a true lack of resources and the ones that may come from some other place of sitting down, you know, whatever situation you're in, sitting down, writing out what's all my income, what are all my expenses, what are all my debts, what are all my financial goals, and having a plan that you can look at. I think is good for a number of reasons, one of which can be when something comes up and you get knocked off track, you can come back to your plan and say, okay, how does this need to address? So I, at the beginning of the year, write out a whole plan for the rest of the year. And then if something comes up, oh, I've had some expensive months, right? Oh, a car repair, a home repair, a vacation, all of a sudden this month looks totally bananas. But I can then look at, okay, what's going on for the whole year? Am I actually off track? Is this actually fine? And just being able to look at all the information is really helpful. I think back to what I did when I finally left work and and when Greg and I finally made the decision to early retire. And we use this sheet that I made. It was inspired by Mike's book. He talks about an end of life planning sheet. I was always on him. I'm like, can you create one? Like you talk about it, but can we like make one? And he never did, but I finally just made my own. And I think I called it a life planning sheet because end of life planning sheets kind of depressing. (laughs) It just fuels my anxiety even more. Yeah. And I actually finally made one and like put it 
right on Etsy, right when I launched Inside Out Money. So it's it's on there for $3. Oh, cool. Or as usual, if you just want it, send me an email. And if it's stressful to pay $3, I will just email <laughs> it to you for free. But I, I use that sheet and I've actually started using it with a couple of coaching clients too, where it's really helpful to map that out. And that was what ma- I mapped out. It like I had listed my goals. I had listed some kind of commitments to myself of like, I'm going to try this part-time. And if it's not working for me after this period of time, I'm going to either reduce down to even less time or I'm going to quit. And I and, and in that, I also mapped out like what's happening financially over these years. Mm-hmm. And you could do that on a monthly basis, depending on kind of what, what you're trying to plan, how far you're trying yeah. to plan into the future. But it was incredibly helpful for me to get that like written out and on paper. And, and I think that was one of the final steps that finally got Greg and I comfortable with taking the plunge. That's amazing. This spreadsheet, mm-hmm. this one spreadsheet, you know. I want <laughs> this one magical spreadsheet. That sounds yeah, like this one weird $3 trick. on Etsy, you know. <laughs> That's a real sales pitch, Maggie. Yeah, there you go. I'm curious you don't have to answer this if you don't want to, but when you were getting ready to leave work and retire, did you talk to your therapist? Like, were you using a therapist? I wasn't using a therapist at the time. No, I, I had talked to them when I, I, I've kind of, you know, been in and out of therapy over the years and usually with like the same person, mm-hmm. and, but I'll just sort of like feel like I need some sessions and then not go yeah. for a year or whatever. I wasn't in therapy at the time. And so no, but I had previously talked to my therapist about it at a high level but it's like a lot of things, you know, I had once tried to talk to a financial planner about it. And like, they don't fully mm-hmm. understand. A lot of people don't understand the concept of it. Yeah. I actually think that there's a big gap in the financial services space in that there are like financial planners who are generally advising you on how you should place your investments and maybe some things sort of around sort of like tax optimization and things like that. And then there's this kind of wild, wild west field of financial coaches and mentors, mm-hmm. but there's not really I, a I'm financial therapist. That, there are financial therapists. Uh, yeah, I thought absolutely. you were going to say that's where there was a gap is like, there's not, there are financial therapists, but not a lot. There's like, not a lot, but I think that there, it's interesting. We don't have time to like totally go down the rabbit hole on financial coaching, but I think there's a lot of charlatans out there and it's kind of something you could just start doing, right? You could just hang out a shingle and say like, Hey, I'm pretty good with money. Would you like to pay me to help you yeah. get better with money? I mean, I did exactly with very few people, but yes. And Anyone could. Yeah, there's no credentials. Exactly. There's no credentialing. There's no regulation of it. You kind of, you know, you could end up with someone who's great. You could end up with someone who's totally bananas. But I think it's like a real need in the same way that personal, you know, you might hire a personal trainer or you can hire someone to like help you organize your closet or you can hire coaches for all kinds of things. And and this feels like a new field that's yeah. I'm really just curious to see how it grows and evolves. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. And I, I think back to all the, the things I was looking for advice on in my late 20s, early 30s, I needed a financial coach of some sort, right? I needed some yeah. like one-on-one that was like-minded and kind of understood where I wanted to go and what I was focused on. And I've actually, I'm doing like a little bit of financial coaching, not a lot because I don't want the time commitment. And I'm finding it, I'm enjo- first off, I'm enjoying it, which was one of my experiments of like, do I like it because if I don't, I don't want to do it. And I'm finding it is really helpful to the other person. And when you look at like the amount of like to just be able to pay someone hourly, it was hard. I looked in my 20s and 30s and there were like these big packages that were thousands of dollars. But like, no, to be able to just pay someone a couple hundred bucks to talk for a few hours is really attractive and can kind of, but but like you said, highly unregulated, highly, um, I don't even know how we got on this topic now that I think about it. (laughs) Well, I think we were talking about 
anxiety, having a plan, potentially talking to a therapist. I, I've definitely talked to my therapist, therapists over the years. <laughs> I, I would say most of what we talk about is work. And a lot of that is like related to money. And I've definitely gotten some tough love of like, we got to figure out why you're worried about money still. Like there's literally no objective reason that you should be yeah. worried about it at this point. And I think having a financial coach, I think for a lot of people could be really helpful in just wrapping their arms around a plan. Yeah, I think you're right. And even so we'll, we'll talk about comparing yourself to others in like good and bad ways, because that's one of the ways to do it. But they can help with it. They and like the Instagram community and, you know, examples you've talked about where other people are sharing their expenses or their income and different things. They can help with, hey, is the amount of money I have in my 401k at this age good? Like, yeah, it is. And here's why, because this amount, if you don't touch it ever again, by the time you retire is going to grow mm. this much, you know, yeah. and like just some kind of quick and simple modeling that you could do yourself. But sometimes you need a little help to walk you through these scenarios. And and like you said, when you're feeling anxious about money, you had a therapist who wasn't even financially focused telling you, you shouldn't be worried about this. Like you're yeah. financially secure. Right. And so let's like rationally talk through why are you worried about this stuff when you have enough money yeah, to not be exactly. worried about it? Well, you touched on the idea of kind of looking around and, you know, how much is normal to have in your 401. I love those posts that are like, here's the average balance of a 401k. And I always look at it and I'm like, yes, I'm way ahead. Even though I question, I question them sometimes because I have 401k sort of sprinkled across previous employers. And so I wonder if it's, if they take that into account when they do their modeling. Like my 401k at my new job, the balance is only, uh, I don't know, $50,000 or something at this point. And so if they are counting that in, they're like, oh, okay, here's Liz. Here's how old she is. And here's her account balance when not taking into account like my previous 401k. You mean when they're looking at third-party data? Sorry. I was like, well, wouldn't you just tell them you have a total? Oh, yeah. No. I, see what you, I thought it was like self-reported. Yes. No, no. Like when you see those, like Vanguard puts out a report every year, a lot of companies do that say, oh, here's the average 401k balance by age. And I'm like, okay, well, I have two and one's really big and one's really small. So yeah. I, I wonder about that. But but I think my point is that sometimes playing that comparison game can be helpful if you're doing it in the right direction. So yeah. I very can't, like I, in my career, I've had some success. I am currently at an executive level. I would say I'm like a very at the bottom of the totem pole in terms of ex executives, like at my company and sort of in the sphere. Uh, but like my peers are all these people who generally make a lot of money and sometimes spend a lot of money, right? Yeah. And so when I compare myself to them, sometimes I feel behind or I feel like, oh, I wish I had a vacation house and wherever. Yeah. But when I compare myself to the best comparison is when I compare myself to myself 10 years ago. Yeah. Or when I start thinking, okay, how am I doing compared to the average American or how am I doing compared to, you know, someone who's experiencing a lot less luck than I am? It, it gives me some, some peace. Well, that is a very Buddhist approach to how to be happy is to focus on, it means glass half full versus half empty, right? It's mm -hmm. to focus on all you have versus other people and not in like a looking down upon people way, but in yeah, a, yeah. you can, I always use this example of, you know, you can look at someone else's house and think, oh, you can go by this really nice house and think, oh God, that person has such a nice house my house is half the size of that. And like, mm -hmm. I, there's, it has all this curb appeal and really fancy, right. nicer car, and a pool or whatever. And think like, oh, I wish I had that. Or you can think like, oh, you can like drive by not just a homeless person, but someone in an apartment or someone who doesn't have like a yard that they, you know, can play yeah. in. And think like, I'm incredibly thankful. And I do think this way, which is one of the ways I've always been able to not inflate my lifestyle and other things. Like, I'm just incredibly happy and thankful to like have a house that I can afford to live in in a good neighborhood with a yard my kids can play in 
can when they want to. And that's generally safe and that, you know, I like the community I live in. And I'm like incredibly thankful that. So when I see a bigger house, I try to remind myself, like, I have so much to be thankful for. Right. right. I have so much more than the average person. Right. And yes, I've worked hard for it, you know, blah, blah, blah. But I just, I really try to reframe things and and reframing things in general to compare, like make a good comparison, not a negative comparison. Exactly. A huge strategy here. Yeah. And and to your point, I'm glad you double clicked on, you know, not looking down on anyone or trying to be like, oh, at least I'm not that guy. But And that's why I think the sort of the easiest thing is to compare to yourself, right? Like, yeah. I mean, if 24-year-old Liz knew that I have laundry inside my house. <laughs> you mean a washing machine? Yeah, exactly. She'd be when you say laundry, I just think of dirty clothes. So. Oh, no. Yeah. yeah but you can do your clothes, own laundry but... at home. Yeah. Like, I don't have to use quarters to do laundry anymore. Like, this is this is truly luxury living. Another thing that kind of naturally comes up when you start thinking about yourself and comparing yourself to people who are less fortunate is the idea of charitable giving and 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 what can you do to be helping other people. And I find nothing in the world makes me feel richer than giving money away. And it doesn't have to be a huge amount of money, but giving money, whether it's giving a couple bucks to the person on the corner with a sign, making a charitable donation, making a donation when someone's running a 5K and trying to raise money, it just gives me such a mental boost and it really pulls me out of that scarcity mindset. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's very related to what we were just talking about in the comparison because you you all of a sudden are reminded about how much you have mm-hmm. and how much with what comes with how much you have is how much you are able to give and that you do have right. like you can give some away and still be okay and you can be generous and help others and you're going to be okay and it reminds you like, yeah. like you said, it gets you out of that scarcity mindset, which is scarcity mindset is an anxiety fuel right state or position to be in right it puts you back in that idea of like wanting to hoard and 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 really have a, a super closed fist around your money and there's just something about it though that it, it's I think we all have a tendency to focus on how can I get paid more how can I invest to grow my money how can I spend less like there's such a focus on growing what you have it, it can feel like a one-way street right like I want more money coming into my life and less going out and the idea of just giving money away for nothing that benefits you in no way, except it makes you feel good. Of course, it's, I don't know, it it somehow just like turns everything on its head in my mind. It's funny. I was just Googling why this is the case. Like, why does giving to others make us feel better? I don't know. And so I didn't really know or couldn't verbalize it, but like a couple of things, it actually releases feel good chemicals like Mm. dopamine and endorphins. So there's like an actual physical response from it. So any act of generosity releases neurotransmitters like dopamine and endorphins. It also, it shifts the focus away from our own problems and concerns, which is interesting because I didn't really think about that. And that's kind of the like reframing and the recognizing like, you know, just glass half empty versus full. And then there, you know, there's a a ton of other things just about how it kind of boosts your mood and makes you feel, gives you a sense of accomplishment. It's like a tangible thing you can do. And it it does boost your self-esteem. It's just interesting, but because my first thought was like, well, why? Like, I agree with that feeling, but why is that? Like, where does that come from? And it really doesn't have to be like a huge amount of money. Yeah, it could be something. And, and and even when you feel like you're not in a position to give back, it might be that you're giving back a little bit of your time, mm-hmm. right? And you're helping, like helping someone else and doing something nice for someone else, whether it is giving them money, buying someone's cup of coffee, whatever it might be, or just doing something time-wise to help another person. It feels really good. It's what I've been doing. It's what I've been doing some of in early retirement is like giving my yeah. time to my kid's school and to our volleyball team 
team and to some of the coaches and other things. And it makes me feel good. Right. Yeah. And it's doing good. And I'm, it's like, there's just, there's a selfish component to it, which selfish isn't quite the right word, but it does make me feel good. Yeah. So I know what you mean. One of the reasons I'm doing it. Well, I think it also makes you feel valuable and helpful. Yeah. Useful. And yeah, exactly. I always say useful is my favorite way to feel. <laughs> yeah. That's a good word. Okay. The, one of the last things we'll cover and then we'll, we'll wrap this up is mindfulness and meditation. So we talked about therapy. Therapy can be inexpensive if you can get it covered by insurance. It can also be really expensive. There are other things that are 100% backed by research and science and are proven to reduce your anxiety and help you stay more present mm -hmm. and will help financially also. And so one of the best mindfulness techniques is meditation. We did a whole, I did a whole episode on it on Friends on Fire many, many years ago. I feel like I want to re-hit it in some way with Inside Out Money, but I'll just, we're not going to get into meditation in detail, but it is free. It is a hundred percent proven to improve so many aspects of your life. I just think it's really important and it has helped me a lot. And when we were, I was kind of at the very beginning talking about meditation versus medication. Like I've relied more on the meditation piece of this personally and therapy and other things, but I just have found meditation to be like when I am on and off the meditation wagon, there's a noticeable mm -hmm. difference and I'm off it right now. FYI, Liz, mm -hmm. I'm off the meditation wagon and I need to be back on it. And I'm very committed to getting back on it. Yeah. I have also fallen off my meditation wagon and this is, feels a little vulnerable to share. I share. sometimes, um, par part of my anxiety disorders, I sometimes have like really intrusive thoughts, like really just scary thoughts that like I can't get out of my head. Mm -hmm. And so when I sit down to meditate, like, you know, if that's all that comes flooding in, like I kind of have to give myself a break for a few weeks and yeah. I know that I'll be able to get back to it. Um, and so I, it's, I, it's interesting you brought that up. I think you and I should. So I was in a place like that and I was like, I literally, I cannot sit down and meditate like that. I know that's not going to be helpful for me right now. Yeah. But I also know that I have sort of uh, come around on that cycle, but I haven't quite hit the habit again. Like every day I'm like, oh yeah, I should get back yeah. into that. Oh, maybe we can help hold each other we accountable. We be meditation buddies. Yeah. And I want, I actually want, I have so many questions based on what you just said, <laughs> but I know it's a very personal discussion. So we're going to have that offline when we're not recording. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But thank no, you for not. sharing that. Because I mean, it is a meditation in general when you, for those who haven't done it, it is very normal that when you sit down, especially in the beginning to meditate, your mm -hmm. mind is racing with yeah. every, whatever's happening in your life is just like throwing up in your brain. Right. You, you're right. not supposed to, you can't just magically sit quietly in the beginning. It takes, you know, months and years of honing that skill. And it is normal that you have what they call monkey brain and like your mind yeah, is just all yeah. over the place and, and everyone's, you know, presents differently to, to your point, Liz. I know. Maybe that's why I've been putting it off because I know I'm just going to sit down and go like full monkey brain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you got to kind of push through that for the first. They say the time when you need meditation the most is when you don't have time for it or when you're putting it off. Yeah. there's the, What's that saying? Like everyone should meditate for 20 minutes every day unless you're very busy and then you should do an hour. All right. Well, I feel like we have shared a lot. Um, and I hope, I mean, I don't know about you, Maggie, but one of my favorite things is after I post a podcast episode when it, it can sometimes feel like a one-way conversation or in our case, a two-way conversation. I know folks can share their own thoughts on anxiety or, or tips that have helped you. Maybe we could share it out on the Instagram if people want to send in a DM or use the, um, phone number, which is 404-981-3370. Yeah. But I, I think again, people who are listening to this kind of podcast are probably already ahead of the game, right? They know what this is and, and we're all working 
working on it together. Thank you. I hope us sharing some of our own stories and being a bit vulnerable today has helped you to think about perhaps your relationship with money in general and if you also have anxiety. So we appreciate you guys joining us. And, you know, we already talked about reviews at the beginning. We don't need to talk about it again. We just gave you our phone number. We probably don't need to share it again, but it's 404-981-3370. You can always send us a message about this episode, about something you want to hear about in the future. We always, we really do love to hear your thoughts. We like to get questions. We answer all yeah. of them. When it when something comes in and it's like specifically for Andrew or for Liz or someone, like I route it to them. So don't oh, worry, yeah. it gets to the right place. And yeah. Yeah. Thanks for listening. If you, you know, if you know someone who you think would enjoy this episode, share it with them. And otherwise, we'll catch you next week. Yeah. And honestly, the sharing it with them might open up the conversation of like, hey, mm. I, like this can start to be some of my community. And like, I like even you sharing that thing about meditation, yeah. it makes me think like, oh, we can start to be each other's accountability partners. That'd and, be great. You know, help each other s- stick with meditate, kind of like off the couch August. Maybe we need like mm. meditation September or something. Oh, I love meditation September. Yeah. yeah let's do right, it. We need a better like wording of we can, we can, we can make a fun, funner name of it perhaps. Sit with your thoughts September. Yeah. <laughs> Steditate September. September. Just September. <laughs> yeah. You're better with the names. Uh, okay. Well, thank you guys for listening and bye, Liz. Bye, Maggie.